I'm still hungry after, uh, <laughs> they, uh, you know, they make spam with uh, jalapeno in it. That's, anyway, we're, we're going to get on with, with our, our morning together. Um, but uh, just a little bit of uh, some, some foundational work before we get started here. One of the things that, that we are doing this, during this season, we are orienting towards Pentecost, a holiday in the, in the church calendar that marks the day that the Holy Spirit fell upon the followers of Jesus after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus was resurrected, after he ascended into heaven and is sitting, reigning with the Father. This is a day of celebration, and, and like Christmas and Easter, it, it marks milestones of the unfolding plan of God as he looks to reconcile the world back to himself. So let's pray for, uh, for our time together this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you release the gifts of your spirit here? I pray that we'd be connected to each other, that we'd be connected to you. I pray that we'd be connected to your word. I pray, Father, that you would even go back into, just as we work things out in our mind's eye, would you go over the past week, the past month, the past season? Would you meet us in, in all of the places where we felt a deficit? Father, would you, would you help us with the moments that chaos reigned? And would we see your order come? I pray that, that you would bring us closer to each other, that we would leave here today closer than when we started, closer to you, closer to your word, and closer as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I've got a quick disclaimer before we kick this off, and one of the things that we are doing right now in this Advent season for Pentecost is, is we're going to be talking about the fruit of the Spirit as an example of what happens when the Holy Spirit is, is uh, uh, within us. Now, the disclaimer that I want to, to provide is, is this. Remember that what we've been talking about for, I mean, through Christmas and all the way through this, this past season is this dichotomy of, of the difference between a perfected work and a perfecting work. And so when we look at the, the scripture today and we look at, at, at even the teacher today, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is, is that we are talking about a perfecting work with Jesus, not a perfected work. And so one of the ways that I've looked at this in, in my own uh, development when I've heard teachings like this is I could very easily uh, ignore the message because of the messenger, or I could hear what, I'm, what, what is being, being taught and, and feel immense shame come because I don't measure up. I've got a faulty metric. So when we keep in mind that, that you know, we're going to talk about love and joy here in a bit, I mean, you might be tempted to be like, well, that, who is he to tell me about joy? He is a joyless bastard. What is he talking about? Uh, you, know, you know, that's like, yes, you're right. But, but also at the same time, like, I'm, I'm a perfecting work. You know, this is coming out of me. I mean, how could I not have joy? I got to, to I purchased a new lawnmower this year. That's, I mean, joy comes with the mowing, isn't it? Or no, the morning. In the, <laughs> at any rate. But see, you know, what's, you know, it's awesome. I realized the other day I was looking at it. I just go out sometimes and I look at my new mower. I don't know if you ever do that, but I just look at her. Um, she's pretty. Uh, but, 
I live on Matador, and I bought a Toro. Like, <laughs> this is perfect. How could I not have joy in that? But at any rate, um, you know what I mean, that, that we, can, we can sometimes look at these teachings and, and we can kind of disqualify or, or maybe create a barrier between, between the teaching and, and, and how it lands because of all things that just uh, uh, really, I guess, rob joy. What, what, what we're doing today is we are, we are recognizing the fact that we are a perfecting work, not a perfect work. And in the perfecting, we see some of these things come out as the Holy Spirit is, is stilling the chaos that comes from competitive survival and selfishness. Um, the other side of that, too, is it would be, it would be faulty for us to, to hear uh, anything about the fruit of the Spirit and, and only allow it to be applied to the individual. This isn't just an individual teaching. This is what the body of Christ ought to look like. This is the fruit of the body of Christ. And so this collectively together is, is what we're, we're looking for. This isn't just a, you know, a bunch of individuals attempting to, to have this fruit as, as evidenced of their life. This is what the church ought to look like as we are perfecting together as well. So with those two disclaimers, we are going to, to open this can this morning. Um, and, and just like we celebrate an Advent season for Christmas, we're celebrating an Advent season for Pentecost to help prepare to celebrate. We're preparing to celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Advent at Christmas time prepares us for celebrating what God did for us in, in Jesus being God with us. Pentecost Advent, this is going to prepare us for what God is going to do through us as he engages us in relationship with him and with each other that moves us into the place where he is the center of our order. So to do that, we're going to explore exactly what the Holy Spirit does how that activity is evident in our lives. We're going to look at the reality of Pentecost in this way, that with Pentecost, with the Holy Spirit, we no longer need to operate within our own power. That is a gift. That's the gift that we're going to celebrate. It's a gift because my own power and when I operate in my own power, it leads me to focus on things that, that really are about competitive survival and about selfishness, not on the ministry of reconciliation or anywhere near sacrifice. What we're going to see is not how I can do things in my own power, not how I can be good enough to behave in my own power, and certainly not how I can achieve the love of God in my own power. This, this love of God, because we were first loved by God, we can be transformed to love like him, and that flows from the indwelling of his spirit. This indwelling of the spirit of God occurs when we place our faith in him. The moment we become a perfecting work, not as a result of being a perfect work. What a blessing that is that the Holy Spirit comes, not when we are perfected, but to begin the perfection. So the Holy Spirit dwells within Jesus Christ, but also in his disciples. And all of those that, that choose to accept Jesus as their Savior 
step into this reality as well. This indwelling leads to increasingly recognizable results in all believers, and it includes Christ-likeness as an outcome, but it's also evidenced by something that the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. We see this indwelling happen on specific individuals in the Old Testament, and it's clearly true also of Jesus in the gospel narratives, but then also after this, it's promised to all believers by Jesus as we become the body of Christ. This is an example of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 10. At that time, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with him. You will be changed into a different person. After these signs take place, do what must be done, for God is with you. Now, we're using this, this scripture for our purposes today, but there's also, uh, th- th- there's, more, there's more to this that, that we need to acknowledge quickly before we move into other examples of this. For our purposes today, this is more about an example of the Spirit pour- being poured out on a person than it is with what a person did with it. This is a passage that concerns the anointing of the first king of Israel, uh, of Saul. After he's anointed king by the prophet Samuel, the Holy Spirit came and prepared him to do the work of the, king, uh, of the king of Israel. He had something different in him, and he was able to actually carry out that task. But we also know, even though God gave him the power to be king, we know that Saul was committed to his own will over God's will. Even though he had access to the, the power of the universe— He was driven mad by his own attempts to wield this power for his selfish purposes. We know that the Holy Spirit also indwells Jesus. We know this both from Old Testament and New Testament sources. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 says, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And then in Matthew Chapter 12, verse 18. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is also promised to all believers by Jesus himself in John chapter 14, talking about this gift that we're about to receive. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. To the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote, Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling place where God lives by his Spirit. And then the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3 wrote, Those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. The dwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believers of Jesus Christ. So with the Holy Spirit's indwelling in believers, we can rest assured that we belong to God. 
That, that alone is, is uh, quite an encouragement right there that we know because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we belong to God. But we also know that God will give us what we need to live our lives and also that with this gift, we will end up looking more like Jesus as we are perfecting works. Paul to the church in Rome, chapter 8, said, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. That is a weighty passage. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba, Father. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are all God's children. This resonates. This is our identity. This freezes the tongue of the liar. Because we are able to say, Abba, Father. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, It's God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he promised to us. That is, man, that is encouraging. We not only are kids of the Most High, but we are identified as His by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then, to get us to this kickoff place as we open up the can of of Advent for Pentecost, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. That last passage leads us to our advent of Pentecost as we reflect on this fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that, that, that it pre, um, presents the Spirit in our life, that indwelling of the Spirit. Now, the Greek word for this, for this the Greek word used in this passage, karapos, we translate this as fruit, but it carries a meaning of result, of, of profit, of action, of deed. The list that Paul presents is a contrast to a list that he gives uh, about three verses before this, and, and this is results of, of acts of our flesh rather than acts that flow from the empowering of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This comes from, from competitive survival, from selfishness, and having ourselves as the center of order. And that list is sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and more. (laughs) A life that produces this fruit is a life that is not surrendered in faith to Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit allows for differentiation of someone that does not have faith in Jesus and someone that does. Not because one person is able to to work in their own power to make this fruit or to make this so, to make the fruit appear, 
but because they're able to recognize the transformative love that comes from God, how that love met them in the chaos that brought them towards order. The love that adopted them. The love that hears the voice of the creator of the world call you and me, us together. Chosen, beloved sons and daughters. The faithful response to that transformation leads a believer to begin to take on a family resemblance. It reflects the, the love poured out It reflects that love poured out onto those around them. The first two fruit that evidences the Spirit in the life of a believer are love and joy. Love is the heartfelt concern and steadfast practical care that flows from the nature and character of God himself. It's part of the evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in the lives of believers, and it reflects the very character and nature of God. Now, the Greeks, we know, have, have several different words for love that, that communicate all manner of nuance that, that comes with this. There's brotherly love, there's sexual love, but the word used here, agape, is used to communicate a love of, a per, a, a love of uh, perfection towards unworthy objects. Perfect love towards an unworthy object. This is a love that can't be earned. If it could be earned, then the object of love would be able in some way to move towards worthiness, and that would defeat the point and the power of this love, that this love is about being unworthy of what we are receiving. Agape is what happens when people get what they don't deserve. Agape is what happens when we offer forgiveness to someone that they don't deserve. Agape is what's happened to each of us when we realize what the cross truly means in our lives. When love transcends transaction, we are in agape. This love is unmerited, it's steadfast, and it's suffering. We see this agape love, this fruit of the Spirit love, in the sacrificial act of Jesus as he went to the cross. And that example gives context because it is 100% lacking in self-interest. There is no self-interest for Jesus to go to the cross. One of the hallmarks of our culture that beckons us away from this is the constant promotion of self-interest, especially when we consider the influence of social media. Promotion of self-interest is the competitive survival that I mention often because rather than creating a a dichotomy of, of rendering mutual service, it creates like a main character syndrome. You ever hear of main character syndrome? Cannot believe this is a real thing, but it is. You can Google it if you don't believe me. Um, Google it if you do believe me, too, because it's pretty interesting. It just looks at that like, man, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Main character syndrome. This is instead of, of people being seen as image bearers of God 
as, as people that Christ died for. They're seen as supporting actors in the epic drama of our own life. These people are either producers of our comfort or competitors due to their own drama. And when we are in this kind of a dichotomy, in this type of relationship, love is not present. Another activity that stifles the cultivation of love is the cultural activity of putting a price on everything. When relationships are a commodity, there's a price for goods and services. There's a currency applied to that relationship, and then it can be either earned or spent. This is a system for getting what we can afford, but we get what we can afford only as long as we can afford it. Unfortunately, this is a common experience. We experience this from people that say that they love us. And this is what we sometimes offer as love when we're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit fills believers with the love of God. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. So thankful that, he prayed, that Paul prayed that for us. <laughs> then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it's too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. This is not transactional love. We also know from what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that, that love is essential in exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but don't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, but even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. When the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless, 
When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever. Forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Cultivating and sustaining love begins with the awareness of what Jesus did for us that opened up the path of reconciliation. It continues as we hear the voice of the one that calls us his beloved. The one that calls us his adopted child. With the recognition that we did nothing to earn this, We're invited to experience this love in a way that makes us a conduit of love as we're empowered to do the stuff that Jesus did. As we begin to understand the love that God had for us, we also then begin to pay attention to others and we take note of what they need rather than what transaction we might be able to make. We see the economy of God flow that we get to receive and give generously, understanding that, that we get to give. And we allow our concern to transcend self-preservation. And we steward the stuff that God gives in order to serve rather than to be served. We move into the place of suffering for others. And it's the power that dwells within us that makes all of that possible. Now next we see that the Holy Spirit brings joy. He brings joy to believers, giving them an inner contentment and happiness, which is not dependent on external circumstances. Joy occurs with the, re- with the realization of God's love and what it means in our lives as we, as we live in that operated love. Joy is a response to the favor and grace that God gives and is completely unrelated to the worldly circumstances that we experience. When the weighty felt presence of God rests upon us, it doesn't matter what else is happening around us. When the weighty felt presence of God is with us, we know that the security that comes from the promise of his love is real, and we know the reality of his plan for the world. When we experience this, this is what we see. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his glory. This is the promise, this is the description of Jesus that came and offers us this. We can rest in joy because we know that the victory is already won. With all of the outside circumstances, with everything that we experience outside of us, all of that pales in comparison 
when we look at what was promised and what is real, what is actually happening, that Jesus is on the throne and he's reigning. Joy is often confused with pleasure. And we also know from uh, the verses that we read before that pleasure is corruptible. Joy is not pleasure. Joy cannot be pursued just like love cannot be earned. The reality of being outside of the transactional also creates another link between joy and love. Philip Kinnison, in in his book, Life uh, on the Vine, points out that one of the greatest differences between joy that followers of Christ know and happiness or pleasure that the secular community knows is that joy can be felt in the midst of suffering and loss. So then joy is not the absence of pain and suffering, but the presence of the Holy Spirit. Joy requires an openness to the Holy Spirit. And there are several obstacles to this openness. One obstacle is manufactured desire. Desire that comes from worldly definitions of identity. And with the worldly definitions of identity, the metrics that are created to gauge how well we measure up to that desire. Chasing this figment of an, advertiser, uh, an advertiser's imagination is a sure way to never feel joy. Chasing a definition of identity that does not come from the Father is a trap that leads to a joyless life, even if you have a Toro lawnmower on Matador Avenue. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. The path to joy begins with addressing what we long for. If we long to be rich, we'll fall into temptation. We'll be trapped by foolishness and harmful desires. When we see the end of the road that those desires lead to, we can make an educated choice to go a different way. We can long for the presence of God, and as we long for the presence of God, we can find joy. The path to joy, then, the mechanism for discovery, begins with worship. Kennison, again, in Life on the Vine, points out that, that this is not our goal to quench our desires or even minimize the intensity of our desires, but to change the object of our desire and increase the intensity of that changed desire. So worshiping God also nurtures commitment or contentment, I'm sorry, contentment because we come face to face with the bringer of joy. When we worship together, we come face to face with joy personified. The path to joy coming through worship. Love and joy also linked through this reality. When we're in chaos, 
when we are immersed in transactional culture, when we're cultivating desires that reflect competitive survival, the truth is we need rescue. That rescue comes because the living God loved us so much that he joined us on earth as a human. In that person, fully human and fully God, that person of Jesus Christ gave me something unmerited. He demonstrated a steadfast commitment to me. And this led to his suffering. Through his death and resurrection, I can stand in his love fully adopted chosen son of the Almighty. This reality brings joy because nothing can take this away from me. The fruit of the life of Jesus now living in me becomes what I can demonstrate to those around me. The fruit of the life of Jesus now living in me begins with love, and that love leads me to joy. That joy also reminds me that I have the strength, the fortis, the power to love others because the Holy Spirit dwells within me. As we turn back to worship, would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask that you would release the gifts of your Spirit here. As we step into the work that you have for us today, I pray that you would speak. I pray that we would feel your presence with us. And I pray that as we feel that presence, that you also would bring the courage to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.